1: Hey guys, it's Morgan. Thanks for tuning in. Happy Friday. I'm so excited for this one. We're going to talk about babies, about family, about raising them into strong, vigilant, resilient citizens of the Republic. I'm so excited. The education system is currently failing our children and it has for multiple generations. And unfortunately, parents for years and years, decades, we were like, wait, wait. You mean it was bad that we just sent our kids on the school bus every day and they, we just assumed that they were getting taught the right stuff and it turns out they weren't? Yeah. So adding to all of those failed decades just in terms of creating this nasty government school that doesn't properly raise up functioning, contributing members of society, we also have the fact that they shut down schools for multiple years in some states and they told us, don't worry, the kids will bounce back guess what? A study just came out and it showed the kids did not bounce back. So we're going to go over this new study. Crazy numbers. And we're also going to answer some questions from you guys that I get. The most important topic in terms of the questions submitted to me in the DMs or whenever I post like a little question submission thing, they're always about family, kids, education, and how to work against the current leftist movement that is trying to get at our kids and trying to corrupt the media and the ways that we educate not only kids but the citizens right i mean that's really what media is all about of what what the press is all about we're trying to inform ourselves and get knowledgeable about what's going on and both with the education system and with the mainstream media a lot of it is so corrupted we aren't getting the facts and so we've got to figure out what to do against that not only for ourselves and our kids but for the children in our communities. So we're going to talk about that. I'll answer your questions. Let's get on into it. Okay, guys, before we get into looking at this report, I just want to let you know, My Pillow is having their biggest sheet sale of the year. Oh my goodness, you all have helped build My Pillow into the amazing company that it is today. And now Mike Lindell, inventor and CEO, wants to give back exclusively to his listeners. So the Percale and the Giza Dream bed sheet sets are available in a variety of colors and sizes, and they are now all on sale for as low as $29.98 with our listener promo code. You guys can use code MORGAN and you'll get $29.98 for a whole sheet set. How cool is that? I have them. I really love them, you guys. You can order now because when they're gone, they're gone. The Percale and Giza Dream Sheets are breathable and they have cool, crisp feel. They come with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Don't miss out on this incredible offer. There is a limited supply, so be sure to order now. You guys can call 1-800-738-8374 and use promo code MORGAN. Or go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener's square, and use promo code MORGAN. Thank you guys so much. So I'm looking at a Fox News headline right now. It says, students, math, and reading scores during COVID-19 pandemic saw steepest decline in decades from the education department. This is by Timothy Nerozi. We're going to look at the numbers, you guys. The first thing, byline says, Department of Education reveals that average math scores for nine-year-old students dropped by seven points. American students' reading and math skills were severely damaged during the coronavirus pandemic across almost all demographics. A report on the nation's plummeting test scores was published by the Department of Education on Thursday, showing dramatic losses from the board across the board for students in the U.S. The Education Department reported, quote, In 2022, the National Center for Education Statistics conducted a special administration of the long-term trend reading and mathematics assessments for age nine students to examine student achievement during the COVID-19 pandemic. Average scores for age nine students in 2022 declined five points in reading and seven points in mathematics compared to 2020. This is the largest average score decline in reading since 1990 and the first ever score decline in mathematics. The first ever. So for decades, we improved slowly but surely year after year because, I don't know, we're in modern society and we should be able to achieve such a thing. How much money do we spend on schools, you guys? A lot. So for the first time ever, we had our, our children, I hate to say this, get dumber in mathematics, worse in mathematics. It says reading scores saw their largest decrease in, get this, 30 years, while math scores had their first decrease in the history of testing done by National Center for Education Statistics, a branch of the federal government. What? The disastrous test results were observed across previously established percentiles, but already lower-performing students were hit the hardest. So the students that were already struggling— in school, and needed the attention and deserved the attention, the help, the nurturing, the care, they dropped off even more. I wonder why. It's because they were already struggling, and they needed adults to prioritize their education and their young developing mind over some politicized pandemic that was used in the long run to do nothing but hurt society, especially are most at risk, are children that are in their most important developmental years. The report explains, quote, in 2022, reading and mathematics scores for students at all five selected percentile levels declined compared to 2020. In both subjects, reading and math, scores for lower performing age nine students declined more than scores for higher performing students compared to 2020. So again, The numbers are showing that the students that were already struggling continued to just worsen and worsen, but at higher levels. That's because they were forced to stare at a screen uh, for eight hours a day and, what, pay attention to a teacher? I can't even do that. I limit my screen time. Can we talk about this? I limit my screen time to the bare minimum. I bought a printer. I bought a printer. And now every time I have to read something like an article, I just print it out because I can't stand looking, especially at my tiny little phone, But if you guys look at, if you're ever with me in person, you'll see all my phone screens are like orange. (laughs) It's because I turned off like all the light settings on the phone. I refuse to look at them. It gives me a headache and I think it's very, very damaging. I I read something that like the effects of being near technology, of looking at technology, of looking at screens, of being near the, I don't know how loopy I'm about to sound right now, of being near the potential um, risks that come from, like, Wi-Fi and from the Bluetooth and stuff. I mean, we're seeing some really crazy studies about, uh, what are they called, AirPods? The pods that are Bluetooth to your ear. Apparently, that's really bad with radiation. And so I actually won't use AirPods anymore. Um, The cool people use corded headphones. Thank you very much. Whenever I'm at the gym and I'm the only one wearing corded headphones, that's actually elite. It means you're elite. Okay, now I sound like a nut, but I promise I'm right on this. I promise I'm right on this. But the fact that... This is all happening, and big tech, is they've just got so much money, so much power, and so much connection to D.C. People, what I've heard is this connection of, like, remember, like, big tobacco when they were paying off politicians and everybody was saying, oh, no, it's actually good for you to smoke once a day, and and there aren't any bad impacts from smoking. Everybody was pushing this message, even though the big tobacco companies were aware of the growing concerns of the fact that, wait, smoking is, is really, really bad for you. Now we all know that it's bad for us. Now everybody's trying to quit smoking. Well, for the most part, people are. But people are comparing the issue of humans being around technology so much and the unknowns and the messaging that, oh, no, no, it's fine, don't worry. They're comparing that to the lies that big tobacco used to push. And to be honest, I'm starting to think that that's right. So I I, I encourage you guys to look into that more. Maybe I'll do an episode on the Bluetooth stuff. But either way. As we start to understand how damaging it is to stare at screens all day and how bad it is for your mental health to do that all day, we forced children to stare at screens for hours a day instead of sitting in class. And we told them that it'd be better for them, for their health, when in reality, they just got more overweight, more unhealthy, vitamin D deficient, and probably just scrolled on their phones addicted to social media the whole time because nobody was really monitoring them. Back to this, though. Oh, yeah, I went on that rant just to say it's no wonder that this hurt our children. It says, there are some of the largest declines we have observed in a single assessment cycle in 50 years of this program, said the acting associate commissioner of the NCES. Students in 2022 are performing at a level last seen two decades ago. So the level of education of our children has regressed by 20 years. 20 years. Have you guys seen the videos of little kids, what they're doing in communist China? Those people, those kids are sharp as a tack. Okay, they're all doing like these outside workouts together in unison and they're incredibly smart. And then our kids are being told by American politicians that are democratically elected into office that they need to stay home. Something that really piques my interest, actually, another rant. When we talk about raising up young kids to be contributing members of society, I was listening to this podcast once. I think it's called Revolution. It's either Revolutions or Revolution. But you guys would know what it is by searching it. And the revolution, whatever one it is, the podcast has a really cool intro song. So if you hear a really cool intro song, that's the one that I'm talking about. They were talking about the American Revolution in this instance. And they do a bunch of different moments in history. But what they were saying is the leadership of Great Britain at the time of the American Revolution was one of their worst generations of leadership. Whereas they were going against our founding fathers, which was one of America's greatest generations of leadership and knowledge. That's a great analysis. Because then when you bring that to modern politics and you say, okay, well, right now, Joe Biden, you see the people in charge of our our military, Mark Milley, Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi, I mean, even Senator Schumer, these are the people leading our country. And you have to wonder, these people leading our country, I would say, are one of our worst ever generations of leadership. And who are we going up against? Xi Jinping? Vladimir Putin? Some of the greatest generations of leadership in those countries, in communist China, in Russia. Some of our weakest generations of leaders are going up against other countries' strongest generation of leaders. Now take the young people of America today and flash forward a couple decades to when we will all be in leadership positions. We will all be the middle-aged politicians and older. We will be the parents. I am majorly concerned with our generation's status in the future? I think we are going to be even worse. Unless we get out of this mess, unless we snap out of it, we are going to be America's or one of America's weakest generations, perhaps even worse than the one right now because we have been indoctrinated by the people in charge today. Then that brings us to another question. In COVID, a lot of people say, are these young people going to grow up hating government or are they going to grow up Loving government and thinking that this was a proper role of government in our lives over the last few years, that's a great question. I looked at some of it, and I, I think it's not so simple of an answer. It's not a hundred percent one way or a hundred percent the other. I think we're going to have some people, and hopefully, as the years go on and the truth is exposed, more people come to this side. But I think we're going to have some young people that that look at this and say, What did you do to us why?" did you do this? We're going to look back and be able to analyze what actually happened because it'll be more so looking back on the past. And I don't mean like the rewritten past that the left always likes to rewrite and they're probably going to do the same. But if they knew the facts and they looked at what they did, they shut down the world for a virus that was very meek and mild. Let's let's be honest. And people hate saying this. It's basically like the flu. And now we even know that, that the death numbers were basically equivalent to a flu season. (laughs) It's insane to see what they did to the world, did to young people, did to businesses. Hundreds of thousands of small businesses will never open again. What they did to the economy, all for what? And I think a lot of young people, when they grow up and as they they age and mature and they look at all this, they become exposed to the information like I did in the last episode. I told you guys. Ivermectin is now listed as a solution for COVID on the federal government's health website. Whereas I showed you right after telling you that the Joe Rogan video where they're all reacting to Joe Rogan when he first stuck his neck out and said, I support Ivermectin. They all said he was using a horse tranquilizer. And I showed you like, it was like a four minute video. I cut it off after like in a minute because it went on for literally four minutes. All of this, I think a lot of people will look at that and go, Oh my gosh, burdensome, oppressive, overburdening government should never be allowed in this country again. How did we get there? How can we prevent it from happening again? I think a lot of people will say, what did you do to us? Especially the children who had their childhoods taken from them. A lot of them were kind of like cut at the knees, right? In their most important developmental years, forced to stare at screens for years all of their their childhood memories taken from them, prom, graduation. They had family members uh, that struggled with small businesses being shut down. They, the vaccine mandate, maybe their parents lost their job and so on and so on. I know a lot of boys that were in high school or college and their track in life was to do XYZ in terms of education. And then their dream was to maybe try and become a Navy SEAL or their dream was to do XYZ in the military. imagine that being your core path for years, and you're working towards it, you're working towards it, you go to ROTC in school, or you're taking a certain major to become educated in something, maybe in global issues, and all of a sudden, the tyrannical government says you have to get an experimental vaccine to do this. And all these young men that had hoped for this for a very long time, I personally know them. They say, I don't even know what to do with myself now. <laughs> like, they they truly are like, the the military was my path. And I, I can't do it because they want to stand up for their own bodily autonomy. So think of all the different instances where young people are going to be affected in this way and have been affected for years. I think that's going to have a serious impact, especially as more information comes out and more people start to wake up to this. But that takes communication, you guys. It's called peer-to-peer rationale, by the way. That's what I, when I founded my nonprofit where we interview people that escaped communist countries, I was really inspired by a study from Michigan State University. And it said the most effective way to reach a young person specifically with an opposing viewpoint was actually communicating to them via peer, hearing the hard information or the information that they disagreed with, right? The opinion they disagreed with, hearing it from a peer, a friend, not from a parent or a professor. And so it's called peer rationale, peer-to-peer communication. And it's the most effective way to open a young person's eyes to an opposing viewpoint. So when we think about, geez, we want young people to see what just happened to our country. We want them to wake up. We want people of all ages really to do this. That takes peer-to-peer communication. That means it's on your shoulders to be that peer that's willing to have the hard conversation. And no, don't go to them and be like, listen, you stupid lib, have you learned your lesson? Don't do that. Don't do that. Be an effective communicator. And I hope you feel empowered and excited. I mean, knowing that you are the most effective communicator of the values of freedom when it comes to reaching our generation, young people especially, that's empowering and exciting. And to me, it's very optimistic because it means that there's so much hope and that the hope lies with us and our willingness to have the hard conversations. But not again. Again, don't make fun of them. Don't laugh at them. Don't be harsh. Try an open their eyes to this. Because the enemy, like we said in the last episode, the enemy is not our peers that are falling for it. There's still a chance with them. The enemy are the people who are trying to win them over, lie to them, and get as many people as possible to become sheep. So total long rant there. My bad, you guys. Let's wrap up this little thing right here. It says, much of the nation's standardized testing didn't happen during the early days of the pandemic. So the findings released Thursday gave an early look at the impact of the pandemic learning disruptions Broader data is expected to be released later this year as part of the National Assessment of Educational Progress, also known as the Nation's Report Card. All right, you guys. So later this year, they said they're going to come out with a more detailed report. That should be interesting. Okay, you guys. Now let's get into the good stuff, the questions on education and other things. A lot of you guys are asking where slash when in our country did Marxism and socialism and communism start to get taught as an ideology to strive for? And that's a big question. I should preface this whole discussion with like, this is a generational solution. And I'm very adamant about this. This isn't just one election, right? I I do think that we live in such consequential times that an election does matter so much. You guys saw that. Think of what our life was like before Trump. And now think of it post-Trump with Biden. We wouldn't have a vaccine mandate. We wouldn't have had this massive inflation and these spending bills. We wouldn't be dealing with the Afghanistan crisis. Leadership decisions matter. Who we elect matters. I know for the longest time, it gets so annoying, right, to hear politicians be like, this is the most important election of our lifetime. It's like the boy who cried wolf. We're just so desensitized as voters to hearing this hyper- dramatized political rhetoric. And to us, it's like, okay, okay, we get it. It's an important election. We'll show up, we'll vote, blah, blah, blah. Half the people don't show up. More than half, right? But now that we're getting into an era where the federal government has so much power, where we're dealing with global leaders that are trying to take over, we need to go and attack every single election as if our lives depend on it, okay? That's how serious this has now become. Because a It is like make or break. It is make or break. And we hear Trump already. I don't know if Trump's going to run. We don't know who's going to be the Republican candidate. But I do know that any candidate that wins as a Republican must do what Trump is already doing right now. Trump said that if he wins, he is going to give back the members of the military their job back. He's going to give them back their job and he's going to give them back pay and he's going to end the vaccine requirement. And he's going to do X, Y, Z. And so when we see this kind of stuff, we know when Joe Biden has overstepped in every single way, we need someone that will go in and with a broom, just sweep it on out. That's what we need. So these elections do matter more than ever. These elections are truly some of the most important in our lifetime because we're at a turning point. We're at a breaking point, not a turning point, you guys, but a breaking point. And so we really need to get our spine back is what this is all about because we're like cracking, you know what I mean? That's a better analogy than like, oh, we're just at a turning point. We're at something a lot worse, okay? With that being said, when we look at education, with all the problems that we face, education, I believe politics is downstream from education. And that's why we're partly in the situation we're in today. So when we look at education, I like to break it down in a few avenues from a really high level. We had the issue of public education. People depend on public education too much. We have gotten complacent. We felt comfortable, and it's a dangerous complacency. For too long, we didn't care what our kids were taught. We didn't care about the rise of the teachers' unions. Now the teachers' unions control everything. We spend so much on our schools, and we get so little in return in terms of the success of our kids. Not only that, but we funnel our kids from public school into a system that is— the debt creation funnel of of higher education, right? The public schools, the guidance counseling system, it just literally shoves American children and their families into this, oh, you must get a four-year degree from a liberal arts college that is really nothing other than what you could read in a book on your own in your own free time. You aren't even learning any skills for the workforce. We force them through it. They're put through a ton of debt and then they have that debt on their shoulders and they can barely get employed because they didn't actually learn any employable skills in this economy. So so much of it is broken. One of the things that needs to be fixed is just the idea of a dependency on public education. It's not public school, it's government school. And when we look at public school, we need to make sure that there's other options because I personally I'm going to homeschool my kids and my vision one day I would love to turn what I use to educate my kids into like a little community school and then maybe expand that. Like I see this as my future. And so That alternative looks like making it more accessible for people to get their kids out of public school, more accessible for kids to go to charter schools, to start charter schools, and to be members of them without the hassle. Because government makes it very hard to start a charter school, maintain one. Same thing with private schools and same thing with homeschools. The concept of school choice is very important. It's educational freedom because you shouldn't be forced to send your kid to a public school where their fate is really determined by their zip code. And right now, blue states and blue politicians believe that that should be the case. Blue states are making it as hard as possible to get your kid out of public school. They're making it as hard as possible to start any other alternative schooling method. They want every child in America to be in a public school, even though a lot of the time these rich blue politicians went to private or charter or homeschool themselves, which is ridiculous. So, making other alternative options for education available is a big part of it. But the other thing is saying, you know what? Not everybody wants to homeschool their kids. And that, that's okay. I get it. I'm a little weird. I'm out of touch in some ways. I want to do that for sure. I get that other people don't want to. I get that it's, it's a lot to ask people to all of a sudden make this kind of radical change in their lives, especially when they just assumed, oh, I thought you'd just send your kid on the school bus every day. A lot of people are going to probably have to send their kid to public school still for quite some time. You know, I'm not expecting an immediate solution. But when we consider that, we also consider, okay, knowing that, how can we best serve those children and families that are in the public school? We can't just say, oh, well, my kid's homeschooled now, so screw the rest of you. Have fun. Because that's how dangerous things happen. That's how more kids get indoctrinated. That's how crazy stuff gets snuck in the classroom, when you only care about your own, when you don't think about the community. And I'm not talking about the leftist community, because when they say community, they mean like government force. We mean families supporting families, neighbors supporting neighbors, people caring about each other at a community level. There's nothing wrong with that. The left abuses that word and makes us dislike the term community. But when you think about it from a conservative perspective, Core American perspective community is a beautiful thing, and we should get back to it, especially when we consider raising our children not through government community, but through true familial community. So, with that community mindset, we also have to care about what the kids in our community are being taught, not just our own kids. So, we have to be monitoring curriculum, we have to make sure we're improving the quality of teachers, the quality of our schooling, and that doesn't mean just shoveling more money at the public schools. It means caring about the kind of curriculum that's taught. Are we teaching our children properly about history, comparative history, economics, finance? Are we teaching them about business? Are we teaching them not only about important historic events, but are we teaching them to be able to understand comparative history in the sense that, wow, we really have a good here? And are we teaching them how to critically think? Not what to think, but how to think. Now, that brings us to the other aspect of education. What should a school be teaching children versus what should parents and families be teaching children? I think one of the other issues that we have is a dependency on the school system to teach our children stuff that is supposed to be taught by families. Now, I think, especially with the creation of the welfare state in the 60s, we saw the destruction of the family. And so a lot of people will, will say something like this to me. They'll say, well, Morgan, a lot of kids don't have that role in their life or somebody in their life to teach them certain things. And so the school has to take that up. And I think that's absolutely a valid point. But perhaps the government public school doesn't have to take that up. Perhaps, again, we have to get back to community. If a child is lacking a role model or a a masculine or feminine figure in their lives to teach them certain things... Perhaps we should be better about being community members and caring for each other than saying, oh, well, then we'll just try and have the government school teach them XYZ. I can't tell you how frustrating it is when I see people that say, they'll be like, I can't believe our kids are taught the Pythagorean theorem in school, which is a super important and basic concept, by the way. I think they just picked that as the example because it's a long name. But they say, I can't believe our kids learn Pythagorean theorem, but they can't even change a tire by the time they graduate, or they can't even do their taxes by the time they graduate. And I'm kind of (laughs) like, why would we want the government to teach our kids basic life skills? Why do we need to have home ec in class anyway? Shouldn't that be something we learn in the home? Why do we need to have the children be taught how to do taxes by the government school in the first place? Do we want the government to teach our children about government? and about how dangerous government can become? And do we want a government funded by taxpayer dollars to teach our children about taxes? And do we want a government to teach our children about history and the government's involvement in all of the history that they're being taught about? Why do we even want that in the first place? I think that's the role of the family and the community, and it was wrong for us to even trust that in the first place. That brings us to this this question, and we're getting back to it. Sorry, I want another rant. Where And when in America did Marxism and socialism and communism start to get taught as an ideology to strive for? This is a multifaceted issue. Yes, in history, and to be honest, most classes don't even have economics anymore, most middle school and high schools. In history class, you aren't really taught much about the 20th century, let's be honest. So like from a very direct perspective, let's look at it like this. I do not think we are properly taught about the dangers of socialism and communism and the history of the 20th century enough. We are not properly taught about that in middle school or high school. Instead, we're taught the basics. We learn about the fact that there's dictators then, right? But nobody, nobody is properly explaining, in my opinion, that these dictators, Stalin, Castro, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, the rest of them, they all came up with the same radical leftist ideology, but promising justice and progress and beauty and a utopia that was just so attainable if they just had all the people follow them. That is how these people came to power, but we aren't taught that. So then when we hear this same kind of rhetoric from the radical left today, no red flags go off in our head because in the public schools, We were not taught that that kind of promise, the campaign promises of AOC, the the fill in the blank for all policies, The oh, well, we're democratic socialists. Guess what? Uh, Fidel Castro called himself a democratic humanitarian. Guess how that turned out? Within a matter of how many days, how many months, he was a communist dictator who had a guy named The Butcher, Che Guevara, The Butcher, who did his dirty work for any capitalist, anybody who got in his way. They were sent to a prison and shot in front of a wall, and they would actually have the family members get invited to watch the death of the other family member in the camp because Che Guevara wanted those family members to go out after that that killing and tell all the people in their community about how horrific it was, so then the fear would spread. But yeah, he called himself a democratic humanitarian, uh, that Fidel Castro guy. Now we have Bernie Sanders running for president who praised Fidel Castro. You have the Democratic Socialists of America running candidates like AOC. They were like, oh, goodbye, Fidel. We miss you. Black Lives Matter. Remember these? We uh, are trained Marxists. Black Lives Matter wrote a letter saying goodbye to Fidel. Goodbye, Fidel. Thank you for your amazing life. Amazing life's work down in Cuba. Thank you so much. When he died, they wrote a letter to Fidel Castro. So All of this kind of stuff is allowed in America today because we weren't properly taught about these guys to begin with. So no red flags go off at all in our heads because we weren't taught that these promises, this language, this behavior is red flag worthy to begin with. So that's one concern, right? I would say the other concern is a a more aggressive indoctrination now, because when I was first starting this, I would get a lot of people that would ask, like, what's going on in the schools? And I would explain it as like an indirect indoctrination because they wouldn't tell us about the 20th century and they would be very sly. They would, they would tell all about the evils of the Industrial Revolution and those evil capitalists and those evil robber barons and, and all, the, you know, the, all the stuff of the, the Industrial Revolution. And, oh, there was ch- children working in factories and the unions came up and saved them. All this stuff. But you don't learn a single gosh darn thing about the fact that communist dictators murdered over a hundred million people in the span of decades, a handful of decades, because they promised a, a communist socialist utopia, and they actually tried to implement the government seizing the means of production. We certainly didn't learn about communist China. So the lack of information and the the sneaky negative connotations given to capitalism and the industrial revolution. Those two things combined led to this, like, indirect indoctrination of our kids into not really understanding and not being equipped for this. Then I think what happened is all these unknowing young people didn't get properly educated on this stuff. Then they get sent to college. And that's when they meet the Marxist professors who are like, hey, kids. (laughs) And then they also hear, like, AOC on social media now who rose up in, like, 2018. And they're like, yeah, democratic socialism is great. It's never been tried before. eh, Wrong. But we don't know that, right? Because we haven't been taught that. And so we just fell for it so fast. So when I hear people say, we got to fix the colleges, we got to fix the colleges, I say, no, 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 no. We got to equip the kids when they are in elementary, middle, high school. And then if they ever meet a crazy person out there, a flat earther of economics, a socialist, they'll say, yeah, no, thanks. Absolutely not. You're a psycho. Your ideas are dangerous and I'll never fall for them. But thank you very much. I believe in economic independence, and I'll never fall for what you're saying right now. If we bolstered our children with that kind of information, we would not have to deal with these easily, easily indoctrinated kids that we're dealing with today in our college system. So that's one thing. But now we're having like a a double whammy because not only do we have this indirect indoctrination with leaving information out or being sly about how we teach about certain things, instead we just have straight up direct indoctrination now. And by that, I mean the 1619 Project. By that, I mean this sexual curriculum for children, teaching them that they, they can pick their gender when they're four years old. And then they'll have adults that'll say, sure, when you're, when you're just a few more years older, I'll give you some hormone drugs. And I'll, I'll help you stop your puberty before it even begins. And then by the time you're 15, I'll be planning your hysterectomy to remove your uterus and your ability to have a ch- child one day. The direct indoctrination via like direct aggressive curriculum that teaches actual lies, that is now on the rise. And that's almost in every classroom you can think of. Not only that, it's in every boardroom of corporate America. It's in the military with required trainings. It's in our bureaucratic agencies and our government. It's everywhere. And it's something we should keep an eye on. So, next thing. What do you think is the greatest thing we can do to promote family creation? Oh, see, okay, so I would say culture these days really freaks kids out about family, right? They don't even consider that they're supposed to take on that great responsibility one day. They see it as a burden. They'd rather prioritize themselves. I just read an article about how, oh, women these days, middle-aged women are just so much happier when they don't have kids because they have about $300,000 more in money. Yeah, literally, they put a value on the kid's head. And they said the, you know, childless women, child-free women is what they call them. They're happier, they travel more, and they have more money. Because on average, a kid costs around $300,000. And to me, I think it's really disgusting if you look at $300,000 and you're like, yep, that value looks more exciting to me than the lifelong joy of having a child to raise and build up and see grow into a great human being. But not only that, but like just the concept of extending your lineage, (laughs) like carrying on your family name, carrying on your family line. You can look at $300,000. Listen, I'm not rich or anything. I'm just saying like to me, $300,000. I would not exchange $300,000 for that. And that's what that article was encouraging women to do. So you see all this kind of stuff that says live it up. And then once you're maybe in your 30s, you'll do it. I was watching a Matt Walsh video. And um, I really love his videos. And he was talking about how his wife is having, I think like their fifth and sixth child children. They're having twins. And she's, I think, 35. And the doctor had said like, this is a geriatric pregnancy because women at 35, that's considered a very like late, late age pregnancy, even at 35. But then you see articles these days that tell women and men to not even consider getting married until you're in your 30s because that's when you really know yourself. But Matt was saying like, no, part of the whole point is to to marry young and then build a life with someone. And You build a life together. You don't build your own life, and then you're in your middle ages, your 30s, and you're like, "Ah, I guess I'll find someone. Because then by the time you're trying to find someone, you're trying to combine your perfect little life that you built for yourself, and you can't find someone that fits perfectly into the spot that you have made room for in your own life. And so you try to do that, and then you're like, oh, maybe I should have a kid. Oh, wait, I'm having kids in my mid-30s when my body is now considering it a geriatric pregnancy? None of this is pro-science. This is all anti-science. Same with hookup culture, same with abortion. All of it is anti-science. But I think the way to get around this is to truly pass down as role models, as mentors, pass down the excitement that comes from creating life, from taking on the responsibility of building your own family. And the fact that there is nothing, nothing like Building onto your line, like really building up a narrative that this is a special thing, including children it, as they grow up in the process and, and letting them know that, hey, when you grow up, you're going to get to do this too. communicating that to them. That that's their duty in life more than anything, more than any fancy job, any fancy title, any fancy role, all the power, all the money, the most exciting and blessed thing that they will do is to have children and build a family of their own. And the more we communicate in that manner, I think we're going to be able to defeat the negative, satanic messaging of the left that is anti-family, anti-woman, anti-motherhood, and anti-science. I'm seeing some of you guys, what are your top three favorite books for learning other than The Federalist, lol. <laughs> okay, so a good, I'll, I'll try and break this down by section. Okay. One good book on current and modern politics is The Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell that really explains America from the 1960s up to now, modern America today. And I think it's very valuable because it explains how our nation has really gone into a new form of a constitution. We used to lead via legislation, and now we lead via litigation. We sue companies. We sue organizations. We sue each other all on the basis. We sue the government on the basis of violating the Civil Rights Act. And it's how the left succeeds. It's how they, they change aspects of our country to be unconstitutional. It opened my eyes so much. I'm so thankful I read it and it gave me a whole new perspective on what we're really up against. So I encourage you guys to read that. Now, two classics that I encourage everybody to read, I always ask when I do my speeches, I ask everybody to raise their hand to see who read these books. Road to Serfdom by Frederick Hayek and The Law by Frederick Bastia. Then then Cultural, a really good book for more so like cultural and for especially for families. This is not, I should warn you, this is not just for people that are raising a conservative daughter. I think everybody should read this, whether you're a parent or not, or whether you have a son or a daughter. The book is called How to Raise a Conservative Daughter. I think it's by Michelle Easton. I might be wrong. How to raise a conservative daughter. And it's, again, not just about and not just for people who want to raise a conservative daughter. I think it's valuable for everybody. And one of my favorite chapters is this idea of, you know, building gratitude, building a firm foundation in your child's mind that gives them resilience, that gives them fortitude, that gives them a foundation to really stand up for themselves and for others and today with social media, with with the pop culture that you see these days, that's all about vanity, that's all about appearance, that's all about followers. The There's a whole chapter about building self-worth versus self-esteem because the world today wants you to build up self-esteem. And that can be taken away like that, right? And so it's like, say you're in the bathroom and you you're in one stall and you can hear the girls on the other side of the bathroom. They don't know you're in there and they're talking about you. It can strip your self-esteem. You feel what they were saying and you feel bullied. A bully could take it away from you. A guy doesn't like you and your self-esteem is gone. It's something that can be taken away with a snap of a finger by someone else. But when you give a child self-worth and they know that they were wonderfully made by God when they were put onto this planet, when you do that from a young age and when you build a a foundation of self-worth in that child's life and in that child's mind, it bolsters them for so many things to come. And it's kind of like what people say, if you're a Christian person and you marry someone who is not on the same foundation with you, if you experience a miscarriage or the death of a child or marriage problems or really any hard thing that will come with life, and you guys aren't on that same foundation, you're not really gonna make it through, are you? Because one of you is gonna look at this and say, we're gonna make it through this. Everything happens, but i won't falter, and i'm going to be able to stay calm because I know who I am, and I know that I was made in the image of God, and we're going to get through this, and we 're going to pay- pray through this somebody else might allow it to just break them down, and it's a hard thing to you know hear right like that was a little aggressive, but the science shows that the the data shows that that that's what really can break people apart is if they don't have a calm, clean foundation for them to always. Stand on. It's like what, what am I talking? About. It's in, it's like in the book of Matthew, you guys. If you build your house on sand, it's going to fall over. It's it's done. As soon as something bad happens, as soon as things get shaky, the house won't stand. But if you build it on rock, you're solid. You're good. And so uh, that book, How to Raise a Conservative Daughter, it's got all these tips on how to do that, especially for kids in the modern age with technology and all this stuff. And it's a really special book. I shared that actually and like thousands of people clicked on that link for the first time. That was the first time that happened for me for like my Instagram story. That was really cool. But you guys, I hope that was helpful. I'm going to check out now. hope you guys have a good weekend. Thanks for tuning in. Like I said, this education stuff, I still have, oh my gosh, I still have like 20 questions on the, the education topic that were submitted. So I guess we'll do more questions another time, but hope you guys have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in. Please subscribe and please, if you like this, please share this with someone. I would really appreciate it. Thank you.